This podcast is supported by Manitou Fund. We want to thank them for coming on board and, and helping to support this podcast. It really means a lot to us. Hey, everyone. I'm Mitchell Hora, a farmer from Iowa. And I'm Zach Johnson, a farmer in Minnesota. And this is the Fieldwork Podcast for farmers by farmers. This is the show where we talk about what's working and what is not working when it comes to sustainable agriculture. Today, we're going to talk about uh, kind of a hot topic, really. Um, talk about the differences between organic and regenerative agriculture. Um, so organic has been around for a long time. You probably know, you know, to be certified organic, you can't use genetically modified seed. Um, you can only use certain approved pesticides. And uh, you're probably trying to manage weeds and insects by a more physical or biological manner rather than using some of the chemistry used in broader scale agriculture today. Uh, there's a lot of regulation around it and a lot of investment in those supply chains. And of course, farmers are getting paid a premium for those crops. Yeah, and when it comes to regenerative, regenerative is maybe a newer concept that really is looking deeper at soil health and, and things like organic carbon, uh, water management. It really takes a more holistic look at farming as it relates to the broader environment you know, unlike organic, it's almost more of a philosophy than a prescribed set of practices. Yeah. And there's definitely some overlap between the two. And there's actually a regenerative organic standard, but organic is much more of a known, uh, you know, known system in the consumer's mind. But today on the show, we're going to look at whether food grown regeneratively could ever compete with organics in the supply chain and with the consumer. Well, luckily, to get into this conversation deeper, Mitchell, we have two experts joining us today. I like when we have experts, Zach. We need that. That's right, because we are the expert podcasters. <laughs> we need the expert experts from whatever we're going to podcast about. That's right. Eric Jackson, he's the founder and chairman of Pipeline Foods. He's here with us in the studio in St. Paul. Uh, Pipeline's business is to build, own, and operate infrastructure that supports primarily organic and non-GMO broadacre crop production. And joining us from Virginia is Sarah Harper. She's the founder and CEO of Grounded Growth. Uh, Grounded Growth is a membership network that connects farmers, ingredient makers, and food service suppliers with consumer product companies to build regenerative supply chains. Without further ado, let's jump into this conversation. Sarah, can you give me your definition of regenerative agriculture and how it differs from organic? Yes. Um, so uh, regenerative agriculture is, uh, it's really, it's a mindset as well as a set of principles, much more than a set of practices or, or a checklist. Our focus is on reporting three key outcomes of um, soil organic carbon change over time, particularly going back and looking at 10 years, you know, so you really see that trajectory. And uh, nutrient density is a new one that we are, our growers in, in our network are starting to get tested on. And that's exciting. And that actually shows you what's happening to the crop, what kind of minerals are, are, are is it being able to pull in because there's more health in the soil. And then water infiltration, which also how fast when, when you have a large amount of water uh, on the field, how fast does it go into the soil? Is the soil acting like a sponge or is it acting like cement? And uh, those aren't by any means the end-all be-all. But if you are, are looking good on those three, if you're showing progress, you, you know, you're showing the result of 
any number of different practices, things like not disturbing the soil, um, adding biodiversity, um, adding in livestock, in- integrating that into, into the land, keeping a living root, so that keeping something growing all year round if possible so that you have roots underground all year. All year. Um, and it's really working with nature rather than against it. And um, so there are, there are some things I think it shares with organic, but I think there are some departures. Organic is a set of, of practices and standards that you, you know, fulfill or don't. And uh, there can be a mindset or not. Um, there can be, you know, um, uh, any number of things. But, but the focus was really on um, getting rid of synthetic pesticides and, and fertilizers. And, um, and that's what they've done. So um, I think there's a difference. Um, and, and I hope that that difference is kind of preserved as regenerative comes to market. And now, Eric, how is Pipeline going to navigate this? Obviously, it can play a really crucial role in creating the supply and a place for right. that supply to go. How does Pipeline think about regenerative as maybe another side piece or another segmentation yeah. compared to organic? First and foremost, you know, if you think if you step up to the 50,000 foot level, think of us as a specialty grain business, okay? And I told my team from day one, I can't imagine five years from now, and that was three years ago, what we're going to be talking about because the space, the food space is so dynamic. I agree with Sarah in, in terms of, of her description, and we chose to go the organic route first because it was the most obvious. It was scaled it's already. pretty clear kind of set standard. Right. There was, a, there, was an indus- there was an industry that existed that needed something that we could provide. But we've been very cognizant as we've moved forward and as we've acquired assets and bought companies and, you know, put boots on the ground, particularly around North America, that there's going to be more and more diversity in terms of, uh, you know, cropping systems. Um, some of it's going to be driven by science. Some of it's going to be driven by the consumer. Totally. Um, you know, we're, we, as a from a philosophical standpoint, we favor any system that leads towards a reduction of chemical inputs. So it's an ethos within our company. Um, so we're all in favor of the regenerative movement, and we think that we're well positioned. Now we may we may be, you know, I think regenerative is going to have a broader, much broader scale opportunity than the organic system is. So we think that our elevators um, are well positioned to you know manage in those same geographical areas. Um, you know, as, as Sarah will will know, she may she's one of the few people that's actually trying to make a market in the regenerative space. And until that market sort of appears, it's hard for us to execute from our standpoint. Uh, but we've got, you know, hundreds of bins, relatively small, right? And we've got isolation systems and IP programs across our across our network. So we're already running non-GMO, food grade, feed grade, um, and organics. And those are all done through you know protocols in terms of cleanouts in our system. So I think I think I think we'll be in good a good position. And but as you're looking at regenerative, like what do you think are the steps going to have to be there to be able to have like a standard standardization and actual definition so yeah. that you can have here's the grain bin we have the facility you guys right. have the facilities right here's the organic soybean bin here's the non non GMO soybean bin here's the regenerative soybean bin. Do you think we're getting to a point where you can have the differentiation between those? The basic tenets that Sarah outlined are are, are the basic uh, principles, I think, that I don't think there's any um, controversy about those principles. So the question is, I think, who's going to commercialize that scale and hopefully that that value proposition gets shared with the grower, right? That's, that's, 
that's the question mark, right? Um, because we have talked to some food companies that love the idea of regenerative and actually hope that it overtakes organic. And they've said to me, because we don't have to pay any more for it, right? And so right. so there's this tension, I think, between, you know, our, our goal is always to try to march the money back to the farm. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're picking up efficiencies in the way that we do things. There's a margin to be shared there. We obviously have to make a living too. But, you know, we like to think that we pay the growers better than anybody else in the space in those, particularly in those physical, you know, those geographic areas where we have, where we have operations. So that could be the hitch in the giddy up is if there's not a value share there. If the, if the food system is, is able to charge more and that value is not getting back to the grower, then really all you've done is replaced one commodity system with another, in our opinion. So as a farmer, I feel like I'm in a little bit of a tight spot when yeah. it comes to organic and versus non-organic. Um, not so much when it comes to regenerative and the, and the idea of that practice, but specifically organic. Yeah. For me, when I look at some of the organic practices and what certain consumers are demanding from the farmers, it, it makes me look at that and say, okay, well, you know, now I have to balance what the consumer is saying they want mm-hmm. versus the latest technology and what I believe to be the right thing for the environment, Mm -hmm. for the consumer, and for the farmer, Mm -hmm. and for the management of the farm. And so now I'm being asked to grow something to meet this label that I don't necessarily think is the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. As somebody entrenched in the industry, as somebody who grows the food, my knowledge tells me otherwise. And so how do we balance that? Democratization of information doesn't mean that everything that you hear is right. 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 Um, the p- point being is that I think the consumer has a voice that they didn't have before. Yep, absolutely. In, in terms of being able to communicate with you, even right. Right. Um, so I think choice is good across the spectrum. I think choice is good for growers. I think choice is good for the consumer. And yep. I think that there's plenty of room for everybody to sign up for what they want to sign up for. So I don't see this being a one size fits all at all. I would say that as a rule, most of our growers that are that are growing the organic grains for us are making a lot more money per acre. Right. Okay. Sure. And I think that those that have taken the time, you know, and and, and do have the headset for I'm, what I'm really trying to get done here is not only make money, but also to do good things environmentally. And they've dug into that and not just taken the rule book of organic, but s- said, this is what I have to do to commercialize. But then these are the things I'm also going to do, right, to optimize my farm for the long run. Those growers are doing, I think, very well all the way around. And I think they've solved for some of the environmental challenges that organic in and of itself does not. Um, and they're also getting paid for it. And right. it seems like it is just a continuous educational aspect. Right. Sarah, what's your view on educating people from ground to growth standpoint? Well, I think it is incredibly important. And it's it's uh, one of the things I'm grateful that large companies are are talking about it quite a bit. I'm I'm um, I'm a little uh, I guess challenged by the fact that they that they aren't doing more. I mean I think a number of these companies could could bring it to market tomorrow, and um, I, I realize that there's a risk in doing that, and that it's you have to educate the consumer and and all that goes with that. But I really think that when you look at the risks that particularly big food companies are facing right now. Uh, that puts it in context. I mean, their consumers are walking away from them in droves across whole categories of processed food. So, you know, um, facing that risk, then um, bringing something to market that is a little unknown doesn't seem quite so scary. 
So um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's really an amazing thing when you think about regenerative can bring to market food that fights climate change, that brings less pesticide, less herbicide, healthier food and cleaner water. I mean, it's like everything consumers say they want out of the food system in one package, and it could cost less than organic. So really, I, I have a little patience <laughs> for right. their fear. Um, you know, it's interesting, Sarah. One of the things, one of the things that, uh, if you might remember, that Kashi had a transitional product on the market mm-hmm. a while ago, and you know, Kashi's a, a part of Kellogg's, right? And one one of the things that happened to them is that the SKU space on the retail shelf started to interfere with, you know, if you're going to have a product and you're going to have an organic product, you're going to have a regenerative product, you're going to have a non-GMO product. How many, how many? St- you know, shelf Different slots, options. right? Sure. And so it became a pure skew problem at the retail level. Um, and that's why, you know, I don't know how to solve for that because the labeling seems like it's either important or it's not. But every additional label that you have out there is taking space from something. Now, maybe it eventually takes, you know, there's still plenty of space dedicated to some stuff without labels. So maybe it just continues to chew away at that. But if you start getting multiple products on the shelf like that, and you talk about skew space, do you think that the consumer, a lot of the time, really knows what it is they're no. looking at anyway? <laughs> no. no, because non-GMO is conflated with organic. Right? Absolutely, and or then, regenerative gets tied in with organic, yep. right? And like you guys have yep. said here, sometimes they overlap for sure, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Totally. Yeah. Totally agree with that. And so there's there's a you know I call it the new food economy. All these all these things, but. The good news to me is that the consumer does have a voice, right? And the farmers are increasingly having options. I'm hoping that within all of that, maybe not within my professional career span, but I'm hoping that within the current generation of farmers, I'm hoping that some of this will emerge and clarify itself. And again, to me, the ultimate goal is to get more value back, have the growers share where they haven't shared before, right? Because now you're not having to buy as many inputs, right? If you've... You guys know how they topped up these prices. They sure go up fast, but they don't come down very fast, right? So the amount of money you spend on seed, the amount of money you spend on inputs, the amount of money you spend on equipment, the amount of money you spend on everything, right, reduces your income opportunity. I think that both the regenerative and the organic space offer a little bit of an off-ramp for that because you're not as reliant on the, the pricing of those inputs. I think before we go any further here, it's time to take a quick break. And we're back with the Fieldwork Podcast. Joining us for this conversation, we've got Eric Jackson of Pipeline Foods and Sarah Harper from Grounded Growth. Sarah, do you ever see a time when you think regenerative might command a premium in the way that organic does at this point? I do. Um, and I don't know exactly when that day will be. And I don't know that the premium will be as high as as organic, especially if it's not a full certification, which... I advocate uh, not doing <laughs> so, uh, but I think it will be somewhere um, above just the, sort of the the random drop it off at, at anywhere commodity um, price. And um, the reason for that is, is again, I think it's linked to these key outcomes that uh, regenerative could help bring to market. But it's also linked to uh, our format is really focusing on a partnership model and trying to have a regenerative supply chain. That is not just about what happens underground. It's also what happens between the people that are bringing the product to market. 
Well, you know, I think also the policy piece of this, similar to organic, the regenerative space does not have recognition yet from the banking system. It doesn't have recognition yet from the crop insurance programs. Um, there are a lot of headwinds against any against change, quite frankly, regardless of what you're going to call it. There's a lot of headwinds built into the system against change. You know, we, we helped uh, working with Rabobank and also with Compeer, local farm credit up here, develop a transitional to organic loan program, right? One of the reasons that they could do that was because we're standing on the other side making a long-term offtake agreement, right? And the market is pretty visible, so I think that that same thing could come to bear in the regenerative side. There's no reason why transition, you know, to your point about it costs money to transition. There's no reason why those same tools couldn't be available in the in the regenerative space once the market has clarified a little bit so that the folks that feel like they're offsetting risk aren't bearing it all on themselves. I mean, dig into that a little bit more. What do you think are some of the next steps that need to happen to keep progressing that? Well, I mean – Market clarity—that's the biggest signal for everybody, right? And so, if you're gonna if you're gonna have a crop insurance program um, that's going to price and cover certain risks that are inherent in any transitional system, it's going to have to ultimately wind up being keyed to some sort of market pricing, right? I mean, we we do a lot of our contracting before the before the crop insurance cutoff, simply because then the grower has a price and that becomes their their market price for their revenue guarantee program and their crop insurance, right? That same thing doesn't exist in regenerative. It'll, it's just a conventional product at this point in the crop insurance system. From the banking side, because of the premium that's associated with organic and because there's a lot of examples of success in the organic system and because we're making a market before the product gets planted, the bank's willing to create a loan, a new loan product, right? It's a long-term loan product. Um, that specifically today only supports the organic transition, but there's no reason why that whole thing can't be keyed towards another program as that program it just needs to mature a little bit more perhaps. So I, 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 there's people that are willing to participate, but I think Sarah made the key point, and that is that the, you know, the, the food companies, there's, there's more talk than action so far. Sarah, can you give me any good success stories that you've seen where you've been able to work with uh, either a farmer or some some sort of a story you have from out there where you've really seen something that you've been doing or working with make a difference? Uh, we started off where we have two small brands, um, and it, it was very difficult, of course, to get the actual crop as an ingredient into these brands because they don't have enough volume to make you know, a mill, do a custom milling, and you know, all the problems you can well imagine, and, and uh, Eric knows full well all these challenges. So um, we were stuck a, a little bit, but both all sides really wanted to move forward, and so we came up with this way for the brands to sponsor the farmer. So they paid for the cover crop seed. And uh, it was a multi-species cover crop that he hadn't done in that uh, in, in that rotation before. He hadn't done the multi-species cover crop. And um, so they paid for the seed. And then he was able to, to do that and take pictures of the whole process. And, and, and that became marketing for those brands. And the really cool thing and, uh, is that you know, like many farmers, he's the agronomist. He's the he's the kind of the risk taker of the of the family. And then he has a brother who's an ag economist and a father who's just you know old school, and um, 
And so as they saw that cover crop emerge and, and really take in the rain and, and perform really well that year, they were so excited and convinced that they have scaled that practice now on their own with no one paying for it because they've seen on their farm how it, it is helping and, and paying for itself. The frustration for me is that I know that this can scale very rapidly because it's it's stuff that does save farmers money and it does um, increase the longevity of, 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 their, of their land and their, their main asset. But it's, it's also very risky and costly to put, to put that on the line all by yourself. You know, we had these brands that came alongside that farmer and helped him do that, make that change. And then now they're scaling it on their own. And then because of that project, one of the brands that sponsored it uh, was able to get a shot to have her product tasted uh, by St. Jude's Children's Hospital. And they picked up her pizza crust um, because of her sponsorship of, of that, that her sponsorship of that project got her a chance. You know, it didn't, it didn't win her access in and of itself, but it got her a chance to, um, to get picked up. And, and she did. So Sarah, you're seeing, you know, that this definitely can't scale, but what are, what's going to be the major hurdles in your eyes in order to get it to scale? Uh, the hurdle is is the is the milling industry. Quite frankly, the milling industry responds to what its customers want. It, it's not it's not uh, I would say innovative at all. <laughs> yeah. um, and and so since customers aren't asking for this, and of course customers you know uh, there's there's blame to go around, but. Um, even customers that want it, that would like to try it. Like, I'd like, I'd like a sample. Can we try that? You know, you can't get samples milled because you have to have a huge volume to even get something made into flour. So when, and, when you uh, say you're saying the milling industry, you're saying the end user here of the product, right? That, or the, the company of the crop. that of the crop. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so they're holding back because there's not, there's not enough demand there. It's hard to IP the space. I mean, that's sort of one of the reasons why we exist is because the, the, the conventional food system has grown to such scale that none of these operators are going to shut down, you know, uh, pick up a, you know, take a 500, 100 weight, 500,000 hundred weight a day mill, shut her down to run three truckloads through. The good news is, uh, Sarah, I think you'll agree with me, that once you've made the transition, whether it's in the organic space or the regenerative space, you're actually in a better place than you were economically. I don't have, you know, there are failures across all kinds of farms, right? But but the successes are are multiplying in both of these systems. It's know. it's interesting to hear you talk about that when you say the milling industry and and you say you know they they don't want to shut down the operation for a time just to just to run a few animals through or whatever it may be, run some organic products exactly. through, right? So when I think about making changes on my farm and everybody says, well, just start small, start something small. I have the same feeling. I'm not going to shut down my 2,700-acre farm to put in 10 acres of organic, right? Or, yeah. or I'm not. It, it's not that simple to to try to switch a 40-acre piece over to regenerative because it's going to take as much management time on that 40 acres as it is on the rest of it, and yep. it's going to slow down Everything the efficiencies do. on the other 2,660 acres, yep. right? So it, it's kind of I can. That's the that's the angle I look at it from a lot of the time. Is that for me? Not only is it a a financial burden and a risk that way, but it's also just a pain in the neck. Yeah, because it, it, it takes the efficiencies away and it risks the other acres that I'm set up to handle. Well, and the good news is the market gives you those choices. Right. Right. So Absolutely. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I what again? What I key in on is the consumer has a voice. 
the 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 bottleneck may be their their food delivery system. We're trying to solve the upstream piece of that, the food companies. And that's why the challenger brands, quite frankly, have taken off because they didn't have the scale issue to deal with, right? And most of them are getting their products made in Copac, Coman facilities that by definition do specialty batch runs, yeah. right? But when you talk about something like flour, the inefficiency of running a small flour mill is crazy, right? So you really need you need a different you need a different business model. I think that's where like what pipelines doing, what grounded growth is doing is that it's a two-way marketplace. So you have to build the supply and the demand together and help people to have economic success and logistic success while you're doing it. Sarah, what's uh, dig into that? <laughs> We've talked a lot about the need for market, and, and, and that's certainly there. But I think um, there's also a need for people to think about risk, risk management in a different way, from the food companies all the way down to the farmers. And so when you talk about, you know, it's it's inefficient to do that that one field or, or 10 acres and try out a, a, a new practice or, or take it to organic. Yeah, it is. And, and But also, how are you going to know what's going to work on your farm and what's the future that might be uh, the, the saving grace of the farm if you don't try it out? And you're not going to try it out on a whole farm. You're only going to, you know, try it in increments probably. So um, I was really struck when I worked in policy by companies that would come in and, and they would be against something for a long time. And then as soon as the policy passed, boom, suddenly, oh, they seem to have be ready for that because they had an R&D department working in the background trying to figure it out. That's what I want farmers to think about in terms of regenerative. Uh, think of regenerative and, and what we're trying to do at Ground and Growth as your R&D department. There may not be a premium right now, but there could very well be. And and I think the important thing is for farmers to experiment, to, to go on this journey because they know it's not only good for them and their farm, it saves them money, but that there could be a premium someday. But here's the key thing. Keep your data to yourself. Because it's the data that you hand over that's going to prove the outcome and it's going to prove the value. And so if a company gets your, gets your data for free, then, and then they, there's no reason to pay, pay more for it. Um, so I think there are you know, a lot of ways to look at, at, at why it's important and valuable to get involved in regenerative right now, even without a premium, while building the foundation to be able to claim a premium you know, in the future. Thanks, you guys, for, for coming on. Keep up the good work. I think both of these companies are going to be extremely integral in building this out and creating value for farmers and just providing options. So thanks for coming on and yeah, keep thanks, up guys. yeah keep up the good work. We yeah, want to definitely Thank keep you. in touch with you guys for sure. Yes. Eric and Sarah, awesome conversation. That was, that was a good conversation. Good. So I appreciate good. both of you coming on to the show today. All right, it's that time on the Fieldwork Podcast once again. We are going to open up the listener mailbox here. Hey, my name is Zach. I farm with my grandpa in southeast Idaho, kind of around the Idle Falls area. We farm about a 1,000 acres of hay. Starting to get a little bit into grain. Our soil is really sandy. Like, may as well be beach sand for the majority of my farm. I may have around 100 acres of miscellaneous stuff scattered throughout the farm that's clay. But for the most part, I'm, I'm straight sand. My question is, how, how should I go about trying to get more microbes in my soil, more worms, just more, you know, activity in there? I know that that's where we're really suffering on our farm is that we just, we don't have any natural nutrients in the ground we've never really been a farm that's had the funds to put fertilizer in which we're trying to to slowly start getting into but 
Um, I would I would personally like to see more activity in the soil, and I'm not sure how to go about that. So um, really enjoy the podcast. Love watching the YouTube videos, and I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Well, Zach, thanks a lot for reaching out here and uh, hitting us up with your question. Definitely one you know that I've gotten a lot of different times on. Kind of how do I start? How do we start when soils are super sandy, maybe degraded? Um, the big thing that came to my mind first when I heard that was see if you can get, you know, you're, you're making hay. Can we get some of that hay back in the form of manure, bring that manure back onto the farm, be able to spread it, or maybe be able to actually integrate some livestock. And instead of haying the ground, try to turn some of that, those animals out onto the, onto the ground so they can graze. And then as they're grazing, that urine and manure is being returned back to the soil that's where you can get your free nutrients coming back. Um, and, and of course, in that organic matter then is what can really help those microbes and those worms to thrive. The other thought that I had was, I think really trying to diversify the crop that you have out there, even with the hay that you're growing, trying to diversify that a little bit can be good. So whether that be still using alfalfa, but also with some oats or some other crops mixed into it, that might be a way to stimulate more biology, build up more organic matter, um, be able to get that soil to work really well for you. So those are my first thoughts, but thanks a lot for reaching out. That's it for Fieldwork today. Thanks to all the people who helped make Fieldwork possible. Annie Baxter, Amy Scotchless-Cole, Claire Jones, Noah Boston, Kristen Schmidt, Eric Romani, and Lauren Humper. Our theme song is written and performed by Johnny Vince Evans with help from Corey Shrupman. And our website is fieldworktalk.org. We are also on YouTube at Fieldwork. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We cover them all. If you like our show, it'd be awesome if you would write us a review. And of course, we'd love to get a voicemail message from you that we can play on our show. Leave us a comment or question at 651-228-4810. That's 651-228-4810. Till next time, thanks for joining us. 